following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, I am thrilled to get in, in a, a new series this morning in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, really excited about this book. It's been a while since we've studied a book like this. Uh, it's categorized as a short story. The book of Ruth is a short story. And when I say short story, it doesn't mean it's a, uh, a fictional story or that it's made up. Just this is the kind of writing. This is the kind of uh, genre. The, it is a narrative. There's a narrator kind of walking through the lives of, of these characters. Uh, there's not this deep theological reasoning like you might find in the book of Romans um, by the Apostle Paul, and yet it is full of theology. Uh, it's not these explicit works and acts and miracles of Jesus, uh, but you will see that it points to Christ. It's not this basic instruction like you might find in uh, the Beatitudes. We just got done with our series of Beatitudes of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, but it's going to contain important lessons for our daily lives. And so the narrator accomplishes all of these things by focusing on three main characters, uh, Naomi, her daughter-in-law Ruth, and a man named Boaz. And what we will come to see is that this story, we will see this small and insignificant family is actually one of the building blocks for God's redemptive work in all of history, even leading up to his laying the foundation of the arrival of Jesus Christ. And it shows this movement through the story and through these characters, and it shows us how the movement of our lives as well are also the arena for God's work, God's redemptive work, God's plans. And so even the daily lives and our daily lives and the things that we face, whether they be joys or sorrows, are all part of God's redemptive work. And so, redemption, redemption. That's the title of our series. That's the main theme of our book. And you might have heard that word, and I might ask, it's one of those words where you, you know what it is. Obviously, you know what it is. Hey, do you know what redemption means? Of course I know what it means. Well, what does it mean? You know, like to be redeemed by a redeemer. You know, redemption. Uh, so, define redemption without using the word or some form of the word redemption. It might be a little difficult, so I thought we'd kick it off that way. Um, to redeem is to rescue, to deliver, and in even a financial sense, to buy back, to restore, to, to bring back to its intended purpose. This is the central theme of the book of Ruth, and it's the central theme of all of God's work um, and all of his uh, work in the scripture. It's the story of God bringing healing to a broken world through a redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we see this all throughout Scripture, and we see it so clearly in the book of Ruth. It is God reclaiming his perfect lordship over all of creation. And so reading this story, since it is a story, it's best read as a story. Our last series, we went through eight verses, and we spent eight weeks going through eight verses. Uh, we're going to spend, in this book, we're going to spend five weeks going through 85 verses. We're going to read this story. I want you to be prepared. I would even encourage you in your own time to spend time reading this book. It'll take, if you sat down and read these four chapters, it would take you 15, 20 minutes max, and even at a leisurely pace. You can read that every day. You can read this story and really just soak into it. Read it once a week. Uh, join us in that. And so I want to read this together. I'll just read chapter one today, and we'll take a chapter a week 
Uh, so why don't we turn to the book of Ruth? It's in the Old Testament, um, kind of in the first quarter of, of the book. Uh, you'll see it's after the book of Joshua and Judges, uh, kind of around, around there. If you get to the Samuels, like First and Second Samuel, you've gone a little too far, so just turn back. I practice it. It takes 3 minutes and 24 seconds to read <laughs> chapter 1, so here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the, women, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt, with me, with, dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What we will see in, in, in this story, as well as our lives, we will see that there are defining moments. There are defining moments in our lives, these key crossroads in our life where our, where our future is affected. 
So you and I are people today because of key developments in our life, key crossroads, key defining moments. I started my freshman year at the U of A. After the summer of my freshman year, I left to my hometown of Kentucky and started school there. And it was there I had my conversion, my dramatic experience with Christ and gave my life to Christ. And I lasted three days there in Kentucky and moved back to Tucson. And two days later, I met the woman who would become my future wife. I mean, it was love at first sight for her. And she's, she's helping out with the kids, so I can say that. This was a defining moment for me. Imagine if I hadn't left. I mean, my children would not be here. I would possibly not be married or maybe married to someone very different. This defining moment of coming back and us being at the same place at the same time. It was the first step that we were aware of, at least. But yet there were many steps prior to this that we were unaware of that, was, that were happening and developing in our life that we had no idea about. There were defining moments that shape us, that we choose, that you and I choose. We choose the job we want. We choose the, uh, typically the spouse that we want. We choose the state we live in. We choose the street we, we live on. We choose our friends. We choose many decisions throughout the day. These are defining moments. They shape our lives. And then there are moments in our life that we don't get to choose. There are things, defining moments that shape us that we have no or very limited part in. Our parents split up. We lose a loved one dramatically that changes the landscape of our future. We have debilitating health issues. We have financial distress caused by a loss of a job or, or something else. When you really think about it, our lives are continually in movement. You make choices. Choices are made for you. We're making hundreds of decisions a day that shape us. And then there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of decisions a day that are made for you that you have no part of. And so just let that, let that just stress you out for a second. That there are thousands of things happening, moving around your life, that are going to shape your life that you have no control over. Chapter 1 is about the movement of life. It is about the movement of these characters and the movement of God within the lives of these people. Just look at the first verse of Ruth 1 that we read. A man from Bethlehem, he went to sojourn to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And then look at the last, look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, with her from the country of Moab. You see here, these are like bookends to a lot of movement, a lot of defining moments in their life. The first verse, they set out. The last verse, they are returning. And in between, we see a ton of stuff. These two verses are bookends to a chapter of a ton of defining moments. They leave Bethlehem as, as a certain family, and they return to Bethlehem very different and very changed. I'll say one more thing about the book of Ruth, kind of to set this up, and then we're going we're gonna to dig into this content. The lives of the characters provide for us a, a somewhat of a split screen for us to see how God works in our life, and that's what I want to see for us. How does God work? God, are you working in my life? I mean, we ask that question all the time. 
And think about this split screen. Split screen meaning on, on one screen you have the daily details and the circumstances that are affecting someone's life. They're, it's the present. And then on the other screen you have uh, the future that is unfolding. And you see how those, how those actions are affecting a life. So you're seeing the, the story develop. You're seeing the end of the story even. And so we, are, we should look at this story in, as, in God's perspective. And that's the, only, that's the only perspective we're given permission to view God in, right, or view the scriptures in. We're encouraged to view it as God sees it. We have two TVs in, in our house. One's in the bedroom and one's in the living room. And they're just separated by a corner. And sometimes when the two channels are on the same channel, whether one's HD and one's not, there's like a delay. Maybe you've seen this in your own house. And so you're listening to something really important on the Today Show or something like that. And, um, and you're like, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And you turn the corner, and the other TV is like 30 seconds ahead, and, and you hear the outcome before it's actually happening. I mean, it's like time travel or something. This is how God wants us to view our lives. To not see it as isolated, split-up events that God knows nothing about, but looking at our lives in God's perspective on a split screen. And the book of Ruth gives us insight into how God works. And when we see him working in these characters, we can say, this is how God works in everyone's life. This is how God works in all the redeemed. Like any good story, there are three movements, and we're going to get into that now. The journey into conflict, the turning point or the climax of a story, and finally, it ends with an understanding of a broad reality. You come into a problem, you see the climax of the problem, and your eyes are opened, and you see a conclusion. You see where it's headed. You see the redemption in it. And so let's look at these three movements. Movement number one is turning from God. The first verse gives us some real great insight into the story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine, and a man from Bethlehem went to sojourn in the country of Moab. It takes place in the time of the judges, among the darkest and most wicked time in all of, all of history of God's people. It was a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did not regard God. They did not fear God. They did not listen to God. They did not care for God. Everyone did whatever they wanted to do. It was a horrible time. And the judge, as judgment and discipline, God brings famine into the land. He judges the land. And God tells him, if you would just turn to me, if you would just leave your sinful lives and trust to me and repent, I would heal your land. I would make you you a great nation, I would comfort you, and I would protect you, and I would give you all that I've promised to you if you would turn to me. But instead of turning to God, Elimelech turns from God, and he seeks greener pastors, and he, pursue, he pursues what he would believe would be a better life. Elimelech's name means God is king. He goes to Moab, and he proves that He's taking matters into his own hands, and God isn't king of his life. Now, you and I, could, we could worship God equally, most likely, in Tucson or Phoenix, right? Um, I mean, you'd be a devil worshiper up there, but, you know, you would... <laughs> you and I, it, it wouldn't make much of a difference. We could worship... We could, where we live does not have a ton of theological bearing on our life. Um, but this is very different. For Moab and Bethlehem, it was very different. God rescued God's, his people from Egypt... He gave them a perfect new land where they would thrive. Uh, he told Elimelech to live there, to live in Bethlehem. This is the place that I've given to you because I love you. Stay there, raise a family there. But he doesn't. He goes to Moab, 
where they worship false gods, where they have no regard for, for God, and, they will, and, and now Elimelech and his family are cut off from community. Most likely they are the only believers, the only God-fearing people in the entire land. His name means God is king, and he goes to a place where God is not king. God is in charge, but he ignores God and takes matters into his own hand. And even more ironic, Bethlehem means house of bread. It's like going to Starbucks and they have no coffee. And he sees what's going on and he leaves. So it raises a question for us. What do we do when our convictions do not equal our expectations? I know God is good, but things don't seem good right now. I know God is loving, but what's happening doesn't seem loving to me. I know God's timing is perfect, but it seems that he is not responding in the way that I would like him to respond. I know that God would provide, but I would really use some assistance in my life right now. So this is what I mean. These convictions, God is king, God is good, God is in charge, and then things happen in our life where we begin to say, what do I do now? Because it doesn't seem like any of that's true. And Elimelech is confronted with this problem. And he chooses instead to repent and to pursue God. He turns from God. And he begin, this defining moment become, begins to unfold. And like believers in the Old Testament, we continue to struggle in this area as New Testament Christians. We're tempted to move away from him towards things that seem better for us. I know that God has given me this instruction. I know that he has told me who he is and what to do. But it really seems like this is better over here. No food, my family might die. Food, my family will live. And the opposite happens. Elimelech takes his family and goes to find life, and he finds death. And in doing this, we often demonstrate, it's good for us to enter into this story and see how often we demonstrate such a lack of trust in God when things get hard. When our convictions don't match up to our expectations, Let's face it, we really demonstrate a ton of lack of trust. We don't push deeper into God. We actually try to figure out things and take matters into our own hands. It would be better to find my own way. Trusting in God is not working. I've tried trusting in God, and look at where it has brought me. It's good for us to understand what it looks like to turn from God. What does it look like in just these daily lives? Because this is, an, this is a very extreme situation here. But it's not only blatant rebellion. You know, turning from God is not just this blatant rebellion of like shaking our fists to God saying, I hate you, I don't want anything to do with you. Turning from God can look more subtle. It, it's in the subtle decisions of our life, of our everyday life. It exposes our desire to, to live by sight rather than by faith. And thinking of our life, in what areas of my life do I, do I panic and become anxious and become uncomfortable and choose to, rather than trusting in God and waiting on God, I force a situation because it seems like it would work out better for me. And things go from bad to worse. Elimelech dies. We're not told how. His two sons die. We're not told how. The narrator of the story sketches this very gloomy, hopeless setting for the story, now focusing on Naomi. And she is driven from her homeland by famine. She's robbed of her loved ones by tragic death. She's a lonely widow that sits abandoned in a foreign land. And it is here that we see another movement, another defining moment, a turning point, literally a turn in Naomi's life. 
in verse 6, it says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return. That word is shub in Hebrew. It means to repent, to return, to go back. And it's used 23 times in this book. It is used so often. And so we see there's so much movement going on. And so let's look at movement number two, turning to God instead of from God. Like many Hebrew narratives, we see this turning point. Like movies that you love, there are these turning points. There's this problem, and then there's this climax, this turning point, and then there's this resolution. And it's usually right in the middle, right in the middle, the meat, the belly of the story. There's these passages, verse 6 through 18, that shows us a hint of something is changing, something bigger is coming. And it all hinges on Naomi's conversion with her two, conversation with her two daughters-in-law. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return, go to your own house. Go, like things are horrible. She's saying, ladies, I'm in bad shape. There's not much for me. I have no sons left for you. You have a future. You can find a husband. You can start a family. You can have a future. You can, you can go. Get out while the getting is good. If you stay with me, I can't promise you much. But if you leave, at least you'll have a chance. And let's be honest. I don't think any of us would fault Orpah. She says, okay, maybe you're right. Thanks for showing me the door. Things have not been working out for me since I've been here with you. I'll try something else. Who of us can really fault her for doing that? Being with your family, being with this family has brought a share of challenges. Sounds like a really bad idea to stay. I'm going to go. And so she, her decision is the expected decision. Get out while there's still a chance. But Ruth's decision is the risky one. It's the adventurous one. It is her decision that we see really what faith looks like. We see in her decision the nature of faith, a, a response of conviction, of real repentance. And the climax of chapter 1 is found in verse 16 and 17. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth's confession is more than a personal statement of devotion, of loyalty to a person, to her mother-in-law. It was a conviction of repentance and conversion that changed the way she looked about everything in her life. This is a defining moment for Ruth. It is rooted in her loyal love for Naomi. And this is what conversion really looks like. It is a decision to follow God with the only guarantee that you have is that his grace will be sufficient for you. Because Naomi is saying, you have a chance to have a family. And with me, I promise you nothing. And Ruth's conviction, her conversion, shows us what it means to follow God, to repent of a life that is far from God and turn to God and trust in him, saying, I am going to follow you. Even when everything around me seems like that's the worst thing to do. Have God and nothing in Bethlehem, or don't have God, but have the chance of many things in Moab. And Ruth chooses to have God and risk having nothing else. And this is what real faith looks like. Her conversion is a commitment to two things. It's a commitment to 
God. She says, your, your, your God will be my God. It's a commitment to pursue God. I'm going to pursue God even if the circumstances in my life become difficult. I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to trust in His provision and in His promise. I'm going to seek Him. And second, there's a commitment to relationship. I'm going to pursue community even when it becomes difficult. See, Ruth doesn't say, your God will be my God and I will follow you and I'll be a Christian. She says, your people will be my people. I will not be cut off from fellowship even when things become very, very difficult. And I think that's a great, it's a great message for us. It isn't, all I need is Jesus. I don't care about anybody else. Real conversion, real conviction of God's love for us and direction for our life is a commitment to do things, love God and love others. And Jesus sums up, he says, this is a, this is a sum of the, all of the law and all of the prophets and everything the Bible says to love God, to love others, to be committed to pursuing both of these above anything else. The whole chapter seems to be this chaos of movement. And for the first time, do you see what's happening? For the first time, we see a commitment to permanence a commitment to, while things are going on around me, I am putting an anchor down in my life. An anchor in the midst of movement, like an anchor that holds a ship when the, the rising tide. Ruth is saying, while things are crazy, I am going to have a permanent point. I, she's the first to say, no more wandering. I will no longer be a sojourner. No more walking aimlessly through life. No more trying to figure things out and being in chaos. I will have a people, and I will have a God, and I will remain forever in this conviction. I will live by faith in this. She's converted, and nothing gets in her way. She turned from idols and turned to God. Isn't this a great thing? This is a confession of a true believer. For us, it's a confession of a true Christian. There, is, there can be no true Christianity without repentance. There can be no true trust and faith in God without a turning from a life from God, away from God and, and towards Christ in faith. Saying all of these things, I am not going to make my, my Lord, I'm not going to make my anchor, I'm not going to make my comfort. I'm going to pursue you and everything that comes after that, fine. But you are my anchor, you are my permanence. There is not, no true expression of faith in God if we always have on the side a door and a way out. In case God doesn't work, I've got a backup plan of pleasure and happiness and comfort in my life. Because we're not promised, seriously, we're not promised in God's word that we would have a future of comfort and happiness. We're not promised that we'll have a, a life of, of, of abundant provision. The only thing that we are promised with all certainty is that God's grace will be sufficient for us. That his word will sustain us, that his presence will provide for us, and that we will have a future with him. And this is the confession of Ruth. And with this turning point, with this repentance to God, we begin to see a third movement that gives us a glimpse into something extremely joyful that is about to come. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Movement number three, trusting in God. We go from turning to, from God, turning 
to God and trusting in God. And this is the movement we see in the life of these characters. Do you remember how the story of Naomi started? It started with a, with a famine, with a, also with a spiritual famine, a physical famine in the land, indicative also that led to a spiritual famine in the lives of these people. Everything was ripped from them. They are destitute. Naomi means sweet. It means pleasant. It means sweetheart. This is her name. And she says, don't call me sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because my life is in famine. Not only is the land in famine, my life is in famine. My spiritual life is empty. And it ends with the beginning of the barley harvest. And it ends, this, ch- this chapter ends, we're given a hint that we are on the verge, not only of a physical harvest, but a spiritual harvest as well. That we are led to believe by the narrator and the, and the development of this story that there is about to become a harvest of joy in their lives. Because of their turning to God, because of their repentance, because of this conviction and commitment to a permanence with God, the best is yet to come. In this story, you're going to see some dynamic character development. You'll learn about Naomi, the mother-in-law who has lost everything. You're going to learn about Ruth, this dynamic character and the total loyalty that she has. You're going to learn about a kind man named Boaz who's going to give us a picture of what Jesus is like, who redeems Ruth and gives her a future. But the book is primarily not about Ruth. It's not about Naomi. It's not about Boaz. It is primarily a story about God and how he works in our lives, how he moves in our movement. God is the central figure in this story. He's working in the lives of his people. And so we should not see our lives of, okay, God, you are going down this way and this highway, and my life is going down this highway, and they're just running parallel. When are you going to intersect? And this story is meant to show us that God is working in our life and through our life continually, even hidden. We're going to get into that really good next week. We're here where we see ordinary people that have an extraordinary God. He takes us up. He takes our lives and everything that happens into his perfect purposes. And since this is a story about God, no detail of the story is insignificant. No detail of your story is insignificant. The parents that you have been given is not an accident. The job you lost is not insignificant. Your struggles today are not insignificant. God wants the struggles and joys of your life to be the arena of his work of redemption. One of the worst things that you and I can do in our daily lives is, whether we're met with joy or sorrow, is to see that our struggles in our life and the daily work of our life is separate from what God is doing. That's the worst thing we can do. Whatever's going on is so that you will be driven to know God more to dig deeper into Christ. Here's something I'm put on the screen. God is not only interested in moving from one season of life, moving us from one season of life to another, but in sowing his grace into our lives that would result in a continual harvest of trust, repentance, and joy. Our daily lives, our joys and sorrows become the arena for his work of redemption. God is not interested in just merely making you and I happy. He is interested in sowing his work of holiness. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to know him. Your marriage and the whole intent of your marriage is so that you would become holy 
It is not insignificant. And through death and pain, God is working his purposes. In Ruth, we see the worst. Ruth is like this female version of Job. Everything has been taken from them. And God is setting her up and setting you up for your greatest experience of joy yet. I'm going to do something really fun now. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. Let's go to the end. (laughs) Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Because we get, to the, we get the privilege of seeing this split screen. We get to see how God works. We get to see how he works in our life and how he sets us up for joy in death and pain and sorrow. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her, biblical term. And here's the fruit of him going into her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughters-in-law who love you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David who was the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, who was the father of Jesus. We are seeing here at the end of the story how God is using death and trial and sorrow and pain and the details of these characters' lives to set up for the arrival of our Savior, Jesus. Nothing is insignificant. God has given us this story so that we can see life on a split screen, so that we can see how God works. Where there's difficulty, we might ask, where is God in all of this? How could God be in this? Elimelech's name means my God is king. He may not have trusted in God, but God shows himself to be faithful, even in the midst of our faithlessness. He shows that his purposes will come true. He brings life out of death. God wastes nothing, not even death. If we see this story through the lens of the end of the story, we'll see the story unfold very differently. When we look at struggles and circumstances and we don't know what's going to happen, we will have in the back of our mind, we'll say, but God is coming, but God is working. I know how it ends. And the same is true for us. You may not know what is around the corner, but what is around the corner is, is, is like the, the testimony here at the end. You have not been left without a Redeemer. You have not been left without a Savior who is going to restore everything in your life, who is going to give you, this, who is going to give you His presence and his, and his friendship and joy. So turn to Him and trust in Him and make Him your anchor and your conviction. So our lives become the arena for God's work. His handwriting is on our lives and yours and in everything. He is working His good purposes. So let this cause us to turn from our idols instead of turning from God in the midst of struggle to repent when, when something is uncovered in our life that we're trusting in, that we're loving in, that is not Jesus. To turn to Christ who is faithful to us, that is working all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.